You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Community Church. I wanted to say to everyone who is here this morning, uh, David's already mentioned uh, the Safety Awareness Seminar uh, next week. It's going to be here after Sunday morning service. Please sign up for that. We need as many as will to sign up. You don't have to be a part of children's ministry, church leadership. If you are, it's vital that you be there. But please uh, sign up for this. Samantha Kilpatrick is actually a friend of more so of Allison's than mine, but Allison is uh, connected with her at um, Trinity Academy in Raleigh, and Samantha led the National Southern Baptist Convention uh, workshop on preparing policies for churches to take care of our children. We have exceptionally good policies and protections in place for our children. But it's very important that we hear uh, what is going to be said next week. So please sign up for that if you have not. There will be a meal and it will not be pizza. So uh, plan to be here next week if you would. Well, this past week, Grace Community Church lost a founding member uh, who, though his home address was Minneapolis, Minnesota, maintained a home in Benson with his lovely wife, Pat. Uh, if I know a lot of you did not know Phil, but if you knew Phil, you really knew Phil. He was a retired colonel from the Marines, uh, flew helicopters, had a, an extremely interesting life, and although this rarely goes with being a Marine, he was extremely opinionated. Um, Phil had a heart attack, a massive heart attack on Thursday morning at 67 years of age. And just like that, it's gone. Phil and Pat attended our home group when they were in town, which was fairly often. So this hit our home group pretty hard uh, this week. Thankfully, we know that Phil is worshiping Jesus face-to-face, -face, along with his first wife, Barbara, who was also a founding member, and along with my first wife, Linda, as well. Phil had more questions about Scripture than just about anyone I know. He believed Scripture with all of his heart, but to say that Phil was a black and white kind of a guy is an understatement. And there were certain questions that he wanted answered, even though deep down he knew in his heart they would not be answered fully until we get to heaven. I'm sure some of everything is kind of like, you know, it probably doesn't happen like we think it will, or maybe it does. I know Phil is just walking around saying, oh, okay, now I get it. I understand. All those questions that I had. The two questions that trouble Phil the most were first. How can you tell if somebody is really saved or not? That's a tough question, isn't it? He was, he was referring to those who professed faith in Christ but did not take their faith nearly as seriously as they should. I initially had written not as seriously as Phil did, which was very, very seriously, but... Just people that didn't take their faith as seriously as they should. That's a legitimate question. But there's no answer for it. Phil knew that. The second question that he asked was, how can people not believe what appears to be so evident in Scripture? Again, Phil knew the answer. But it grieved him deeply that the words of life were so easily rejected or explained away. It was not primarily that Phil wanted you to agree with him, although that was certainly in Phil's personality, but truly that was not what he wanted. He wanted desperately for you to know the Word of God and to believe it. 
There is much in Scripture that is straightforward. There are a lot of things that aren't straightforward, but there's a lot that is, and Phil wanted you to believe it. Phil's funeral is going to be um, this Wednesday here at church at 2 o'clock. And I know that if you didn't know Phil, there's no compunction to come. But if you've ever been to a funeral of a family member, that when you hear about that family member at the end of it, you're like, man, I wish I'd have known this, this person better. Look, Phil was family. Please be here if you can. Visitation is from 1230 to 145. And then there's going to be a funeral right here in our church. Please be praying for, uh, for Pat in Minnesota. She's coming this way today. And then also for Heather, uh, his daughter, um, <clears throat> Phil's daughter, and also one of our missionaries that we supported until just recently. That Tripp and Heather had to come home from Indonesia because of medical issues with the child. Uh, but please pray for that family, for Ryan Wilson's family, and for all of those who are grieving. It happened uh, right toward the end of our bulletin prep time, and so it's not in the bulletin, but be praying for Pat and the family. Today's uh, text, John 10, 22 to 42, will get at the, it, it answers to the questions that Phil uh, asked. Although, if it gave us the exact answers, then Phil wouldn't have been so mystified as he was about why things weren't as he thought they could be. Three Sundays ago, we explored the first half of John 10 and were confronted and comforted by the good shepherd. I don't think if you... It's sometimes... We, we just think there's this incredibly long sliding scale about where you are in your relationship with God. Ultimately, either you're all the way in or you're all the way out. And the good shepherd is convicting, yes, but comforting, guiding, caring through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and following Jesus according to the Father's plan, or you're out. So the good shepherd either confronts people where they are in their sin, or he brings comfort and leading or guidance and leadership and, 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 and provision. The last two weeks, we've taken a break from John, but we're back in full force uh, this morning. We're going to learn early in the text that the setting for this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders was the Feast of Dedication, which was very much like the Feast of Booths uh, in its emphasis on light in the darkness. Jesus returns in this section to the shepherd and sheep motif in his debate with the hearers. Now, we don't know if 22 was kind of a, a, a break, a clean break that takes there, or if it goes all the way. It, it, it's there from 7, chapter 1, all the way, or verse 1, all the way through uh, 10, 21 is one section, or if chapter 10 is one section. But we know that we've moved from the Feast of Booths in the fall, which reminds us of the State Fair, which is coming up pretty soon, by the way, just so you know. And then the Feast of Dedication, which takes place, we know it is Hanukkah, so Hanukkah. So it is in December near our Christmas time. So John 10, 22 to 42, rather than standing for the reading of this lengthy narrative section, please remain seated as we work through our way through uh, the text. And since the text is filled with theological and practical truths, there will be important questions of our own as we wrestle with this text. And it comes from our time in the Word. Let's, let's begin our time in prayer. Father, We pray on this day um, when we are confronted with the brevity of life and the greatness of the promise of eternal life. We pray that you would remind us just how important <laughs> the scripture is. And even though there are many here who did not know Phil nearly as well as others did. Lord, we all at some time 
fairly often are confronted with our need to be walking with you when the hour comes. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and that you would fill our minds and our hearts with joy, even in the midst of our sorrow, as we consider the great blessing of belonging to the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. John 10, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And as Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, or Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just say it. We need to hear it. Now, again, we know that the Feast of Dedication uh, took place at what we call now Hanukkah. So this incident took place in December. Hanukkah was a festival that emphasized the light. Day after day, they would light these candles just like they did during the Feast of of Booze. But in addition to pointing out the fact that this took place at the Feast of Dedication, John adds rather ominously, it was winter. He does this very much in the the spirit of, of Nicodemus in chapter 3 when he said it was night. When Nicodemus came to to see Jesus. And the point is there was spiritual darkness all over Israel. Even though the candles were lit day by day, night by night. Israel remained in darkness. Unable to recognize their Messiah who was standing right in front of them. So in classical or classic denial mode. They demanded that Jesus tell them plainly who he was. Now, let me ask you a question. If you've been here through this whole section in John or this whole time in John, should they have known who he was? Should they have had to ask him again? Now, wait a minute. Just tell me one more time. Who are you? You you have those kind of moments, don't you? When you're supposed to, you meet somebody and then you meet them again, you meet them again. And and you, but you're, you're still not confident who now who are you this is not at all what they were doing they knew exactly who he was they denied his claims about himself and so they said who are you exactly come on tell us it's interesting When you look back in John, Jesus had never publicly announced specifically that he was the Messiah. So they had a little bit of grounds for that question. But they should have known. Now, Jesus told the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, that he was the Messiah. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that he told his disciples privately that he was the Messiah, but he never publicly proclaimed the words that they wanted to hear. Words that would give them the right without any question whatsoever, arrest him, take him, and kill him. You would think, though, that when he said in John chapter 5, all scripture points to me. You look in scripture, you think you have eternal life just because you know the law. He said, don't you know it all points to me? In John 8, before Abraham was I am. They knew what he was saying, but they needed him to say it just right so that they could debate him and prove him wrong in this public setting or so that they could kill him. So that's why Jesus answers them. He knows what's going on. They've surrounded him. He's walking along in the colonnade. He's got disciples, but they kind of hem him in most likely and say, tell us who you are. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. By the way, we're we're not doing the same works that Jesus did 
Although we're going to have to figure out what he means when he says, the works that I do, even greater works you will do. When, when we get over into the, the final discourse. Or, uh, um, so <coughs> Jesus, though, says the very works that I do testify about me. And that's what people are looking at with you, too. When they're evaluating Jesus, they're looking at your life and saying, now, does this measure up or is this person just like the, every other hypocrite I've ever known who goes to church? There's nothing you can do about the accusations because a lot of times they're just like the Pharisees wanting to deny no matter what and, and, and rejecting Jesus in spite of the evidence. But we're called to live like he lived. So Jesus said, I told you. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. You can see the scene almost. This crowd is surrounded and they start pointing a finger in his face. Or, or stand there with crossed arms. And you can just almost hear Jesus sigh. And he's saying, essentially, you don't believe because you don't want to believe. There's more enough evidence in the miracles that I, to, that I do to prove who I am. Prove that what I say is true. It was a not, not enough for Jesus to say that my sheep know my voice and follow me. But he looked at them very directly and said, you are not my sheep. Therefore, you don't follow me. We who hear the shepherd's voice may find it very difficult to understand why others don't follow. Because for those who don't hear Jesus' voice, the benefits, or for those who do hear Jesus' voice, we're, we're all tangled up because we're saying, how can you not follow him? We follow him and the benefits are beyond comprehension. They're Cannot be measured in human terms and understanding. Verse 28. Jesus said. Those who hear my voice. I give eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is, has given them to me. Is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them. Out of the father's hand. I and the father. Are one. When you look at verse 30, you think that Jesus is saying very directly, I am God. And in a roundabout way, he is saying that, but not as directly as they want. <laughs> but think about what he's just said, eternal life. We are secure from judgment. We are in the Savior's grip. And if that were not enough, we are secure in the Father's hand. Whose plan it was for Jesus to save us through his sacrificial death. Taking our place. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He was not saying in our Trinitarian formula. That I and the Father of the same essence. Even though we are distinct as individuals. He was rather saying that Jesus and the Father were in perfect unity and plan and purpose to save those who will believe in him. What does it mean for the father and the son. To be in perfect unity. With regard to the purpose of salvation for mankind. It means that even though the father and son are distinct persons. They are of one essence. It's kind of like. You know, back in the day, I don't think I've heard it lately, but not too many years ago, I used to hear people say, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's leading them down the trail that there is no other conclusion but that he is God in the flesh. But he's not saying it in quite the language that they need him to say it for. But they understood what he meant. Look at their response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. He, he answered very quickly. He interjected quickly. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? From causing a blind man to see? 
lame men to walk. In the next chapter, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that's going to really make a man. Which of these good works from the Father are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, this is not the first time the religious leaders have picked up stones to stone Jesus. It is highly unlikely that they would have followed through on their threat. I mean, this was just a show, and they were saying, you're worthy of death. But you just never know. Make no mistake, these leaders were furious. When someone is morally outraged, they can be dangerous to those around them. When someone is self-righteously and religiously outraged. Well, there's nothing quite like that. Do you know of any religious fanatics around the world thinking that they're doing God a favor by putting others to death? Look, it's not just those that are um, very openly religious, but even atheists today project a a religious-like zeal for their causes. It's why we who believe the gospel must be gentle and leave the proper response to those who treat us badly to the Lord. Put it in the Lord's hands. It's a beautiful plan. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. When we get to heaven, we'll be perfect at that point. And then we can call for the, for the blood of those who have killed the martyrs. But we can't do that here. We're not allowed to do that. We're told to be like Jesus was in his death and to forgive our enemies. Better by far when someone is furious with you to engage them with the gospel in the manner that the Lord did. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, there's a lot going on in Jesus' response to the leaders. If we were going to dig down really deep and try and understand exactly what Jesus was saying, we'd be here for a very long time. But think about a few things. First, it's interesting that he designated a passage from Psalms as law. This was just about the time where uh, many of the, uh, of the Jewish religious leaders were accepting all the Old Testament writings as scriptures, poetry, history, all of that, prophets, that were, they were all being considered part of the Old Testament or the, the God's revelation to man, which they generally called the law. So Jesus acknowledges, yes, Psalms are a part of the law. And then second, he put them on the spot right, by reminding them that the justification for his claim to be the son of God was in their law or your law. Your law says this, right? That's not that he was saying, I've got a different Bible than you've got. What he was saying was, we're all reading from the same text. And you don't see this? You should have seen this. If the, he's asking rhetorically, if the utterly reliable scripture refers to people as gods, then what is your problem with me saying, I... And God's son. This is the third thing. He's making a big picture argument. He's using all of scripture to say, you know, here, 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 everywhere is pointing to me. And you're missing the main point. You're missing the forest for the trees. You're so involved in details here, there. And you've made it just exactly like you want it, just exactly like you expect. And I don't fit the, the mold. But if you'll go back and look again, I'm everywhere. In the Old Testament. Now I would not suggest. Please know. I would not suggest that you use Psalm 82. In your gospel presentation. But it was the perfect way. For Jesus to say to the Pharisees. It should not surprise you. That the son of God. Has come to earth. 
The crux of Jesus' argument follows. Verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So Jesus asked them, can you really fault the miracles with which I have blessed the people? Clearly, I'm not the Messiah you were looking for, and thus you do not believe my words. But can you ignore the good works that I have done? Even if you do not want to believe me, Believe the signs that point to me. And when you believe, you will understand. It will all make sense once you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Many theologians and believers throughout the centuries have recognized the importance of believing so that we may know rather than learning about God so that we can then believe. It's an order thing. We think, all right, this is the way we do everything else. I'm going to read up, I'm going to study, I'm going to know all the issues, and then I'm going to make my mind up. Then I'm going to make a decision. Well, God gives us enough, a plenty, and calls us to believe. And then, when we believe, it all becomes clear to us. It's interesting, uh, when you look back in history, how so many people spoke to this issue. And it's also interesting to me that so many very important people in Scripture or in church history have names that begin with the letter A. I'm going to quote two of them here. First, Augustine. Augustine said, believe that you may understand. You're not going to figure this out. Believe so that you may understand. And then Anselm of Canterbury, faith Seeking, understanding, Anselm, so important to our understanding of God. And it was late in the game. I mean, he's the 11th century before many of the things that he gave us, not always perfectly on target, but put us in the right direction, including what it meant for Christ to die in our place, a substitutionary sacrifice. He said it as clearly as anyone, or at least started The movement, the reformers really finished it up. But our understanding of of the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. And and Anselm, although he was, he understood the importance of reason, or he he maybe overemphasized the importance of reason, said that we don't try to figure this out so that we can believe, but we, and then believe, but we believe so that we can figure this out. What Jesus said in John 10, 37 is very similar to what he said back in John 17. The point of which is that the world demands, show me God that you exist and I will believe. But that's the wrong order. Not show me and I will believe. Jesus says, believe me and I will show you. The fear of Pharisees were not convinced and they tried to arrest him. Don't you wonder all of these times where Jesus escaped out of their hands, how that happened? I mean, I I don't think it's a, you know, like putting on the ring and he's just not there. Is it a stealthy move or is, you know, they get a feel of his guns, you know, as he walks by and they're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not messing with that. You you arrest him. I think I'm going to... Whatever, he moved out of the way. The Lord was not ready for him to die, and it was not going to happen. So to wrap up this section of his gospel, John tells us where Jesus went after this encounter. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Look, over and over and over in the Gospel of John, 
the apostle points back to the John the Baptist and say, you know what? John the Baptist was not the real deal. Jesus was the real deal. You know why? That's the case. Do you remember? A, a John the Baptist cult had arisen, had sprung up toward the end of the century when John the apostle wrote this book. And it was kind of like if we, if we exalt John the Baptist, then we can say that Jesus was a heretic. He was the real deal, but Jesus was an imposter. And, and John is saying, no, 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 no. It's not that John the Baptist was an, an imposter, but Jesus was the one that John the Baptist glorified, pointed to. John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. At this point, there was almost nowhere Jesus could go where his enemies would not seek to arrest him. The Apostle John, using the occasion to remind people, we should give attention to Jesus. The wonderful thing said about John the Baptist is that he was a faithful witness to Christ. And that is our calling, to be a faithful witness to Jesus, which, by the way, Phil Wilson was in large, large measure. So let's think about four ways to fulfill our calling to proclaim the gospel. Beginning with, be faithful to proclaim God's truth to those who do not know Jesus. That's the point of John's gospel in the first place. The Apostle John, you will remember, told us near the end of his book that he wrote this gospel so that all who read it and hear of it will believe. In John 10, the religious leaders surrounded Jesus demanding answers. It may be that many of your opportunities to witness will come in a similar fashion these days. People want to know what it is you believe. They know that you, they, that you disagree with their thoughts about what everybody in the whole civilized world today believes. So how can you possibly believe that? These may be your opportunities to share Christ. You may be given an account, a call to give an account of your beliefs that are at odds with the culture. And when you are so confronted, share the good news of Jesus. Don't waffle. Just turn people's attention to the main thing. But do not wait to be asked. Find ways to share the only news that will bring the blessing of eternal life. Share the gospel of Jesus. And as you do, you will need to be able and ready to explain the big story of Scripture. It's not enough to know the Roman road, although it's that's a great presentation of the gospel. But you need to be prepared to address objections to Jesus from several different angles. Look, I would have never used Psalm 82 where God said to the leaders of the people, it was really a word of rebuke, you are gods. But Jesus used it perfectly in his presentation to the Pharisees in a way that made sense to them. They rejected it. But it was a great argument for the point in time. Is a 2,000-year-old story relevant today? Not only a 2,000-year-old story, but the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, some of you, uh, if you're into this kind of language, would like to use the word meta-narrative here. But Michael Horton warns us against the notion that the stories of Scripture point to a bigger idea. That really, if, if you're talking meta-narrative, post-modernists get to determine. They get to say, this is what all of this meant. Here's what Horton says. For, for the authors of Scripture, the big story did not point to something else beyond it, but was itself the point. The fact that Jesus entered history as one of us 
kept the law perfectly, died his death in our place as the only eligible sacrifice for sin that could serve to satisfy God's wrath against my sin and your sin. If we acknowledge our sin and repent of it and believe that Jesus died in our place. Him coming to history was not doo-doo-doo. It was the whole plan. The last Adam got right what the first Adam and all of his descendants got wrong. It's do we die because of Adam's sin or because of our sin? Yes, is the answer. But if we if you have to pick one or the other, we die because of Adam's sin. And we live because of Jesus' sacrifice and his righteousness. It's imputed to us when we believe. Here is the upshot of this point. Jesus always makes sense in whatever place or time we find ourselves or others when we believe. When you believe, begins to make sense, which is why it is our privilege to call others to faith in Jesus. Even though the Pharisees were adamantly opposed to Jesus, he called them to believe so that they might see the power and blessings of God. It's one of the things I found so interesting in this text. Lots of times we see Jesus laying down the truth and he's saying, I'm here, you're there, and we're not on the same team. You're not a part of, of, the, of the family of God. And he just walks away. Here he says, you're not my sheep. You don't. But believe it. Believe it. And then you'll understand. Then it will make sense if you will just believe. I love to talk about Jesus with just about anyone. And I find myself in more conversations than I think I do. If you say, hey, do you get a chance to witness? Not really. I'm, I'm with other sheep most of the time. That's my responsibility to be in the midst of the sheep. And so I don't get as many opportunities as you might to share Christ. But I find myself frequently interacting with lost folks. And I, I do love to share about Jesus, even if it's just a point here, a point there. Part of the gospel because it takes all of that from all of us as we share with other people. But finding the courage to call someone to faith in Jesus, that's another thing altogether. Now, some of you are very good at that. You are evangelist. And you are happy to call people. Will you believe? Can I help you? Can I do what? And in fact, that's the point. There are... There are some people who may be too shy to ask, how do I become a Christian? Or, or they just need that little extra boost. They don't know how to approach the Lord. After you've shared the gospel, even if you don't call them to, to believe right at that moment, you could say something like, look, you can call on Jesus anytime. When you're at home, alone, in bed, right by yourself, call out to Jesus. He will save you. Last, having done your best to explain the gospel, leave the results to God. After all, those who believe are his sheep, and those that he calls hear his voice and follow him. So many times... We think that if the one we care about could just read this book or if they could just hear that sermon or if someone could just talk to them, then they would believe. But when the leaders told Jesus, just tell us plainly who you are, he said, I've already told you, but you still do not believe because you are not my sheep. So. May I ask you, who would you rather be responsible for getting sheep who are outside of Jesus' fold into his fold? You or Jesus? Now, we've all got a responsibility. And even those that he said, you're not my sheep, 
And, and that's why you don't listen to me. Even then, he was saying, but believe, believe. And, and, and there's somebody that you love deeply and you desperately want him or her to follow Jesus just like you do, just like Phil. Man, he just wanted people to know. and just It's just so beautiful over here. Come, come along. But there's a certain point where they know the gospel. They know what you believe. It may be time to just back off a bit. Turn it over to the Lord. He's the good shepherd. He calls his sheep. And if you were in... Your loved one's life. There's a really good possibility. He's called you to share the gospel, which you have done. And he's also called you to pray. And there's a good possibility that that person is going to follow Jesus at the right time. So, as we prepare for the Lord's table, I, I would like to ask you to bow your heads as the elders and the deacons and the worship team Come forward. We're going to serve from the front today. This is different uh, than it has been for a while. But elders, deacons, worship team, if you would come forward and we'll serve them first. And then um, we will come forward. We'll have someone in the back who will serve you if you cannot come forward. So please just raise your hand and they will serve you at that time. But as we prepare... And as your heads are bowed, I just want you to picture that person in your heart and mind. Someone that you want desperately to come to Jesus or to come back to Jesus. You've done everything that you can to help your loved one to open his or her, her heart to Jesus. So right now, in faith, Would you give this burden to the Lord? I don't mean to quit praying or to quit caring or to quit showing the love of Christ. Your burden may increase after this. But perhaps it's time to just back off a little bit and give this to the Lord. Would you give the burden of the responsibility of saving your loved one over to the Lord right now? Now that you have, have done this, can we pray together? Let's just pray together silently in unison though. That the Father will draw these many loved ones to Jesus. Lord, on behalf of many broken hearts... In this room, at this moment. I just want to lift up the ones that have walked away. The ones who know the gospel. But have been drawn by the siren sound of the world and the culture. It's not an easy day to follow you, but it's never been an easy day to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would draw these ones to yourself. That you would call and your sheep would come. We pray that as a result of our time, well, no, not as a result of our time, but as a result of your plan calling us together to pray, that many, will come back. Many will come into the fold. We pray that you would comfort our hearts and that you would ever cause us to focus on and exalt the Savior. And may the peace and the love and the care that is in our hearts transcend 
the anger of the day. And may people be attracted to Jesus and believe. And as we come to this table, it is a place that we are reminded time after time the beauty of God's sacrifice, but it was done in space and time and in real flesh and blood history. You sought us. You loved us and you died for us, Jesus. And so as we participate in this meal, our hearts, we pray, be drawn to you and to one another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In Mark chapter 14 this is possibly the first time that in print and read to people in large numbers that they heard about the institution of the Lord's Supper directly from a writer of scripture now the word had gotten around people knew what to do the early church practiced it but here are instructions they're brief but they're powerful and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This past week, I... Spoke at TVR at the uh, couples retreat, the marriage retreat. We talked a lot about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and God's design for marriage and the challenges to marriage. And one of the things in preparation that I had not known before was that Judaism does not think that when Adam and Eve fell, that it was a spiritual death. Physical death began at that time, but they don't think it was a spiritual death. Now, that makes sense why... You think that you can be justified by the law. But of course the problem with that. As we've seen over and over. Is that we fashion a law. That we're able to keep. And uh, uh, Jeff Kelly thinks he's got a law. That he can keep. But I'm telling you his law is not right. It's my law. that If everybody just follow what I say. It's because I have less problems. With the, with the things that I allow for in my law. And Jeff has more problems. But then his law is the same way. No law we cannot keep the law and be justified. One sin, we're guilty of all, James says. If you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So it is necessary that a new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant where God says, if you serve me, obey me, I will bless you in ways you can't even imagine. Problem is, none of us can obey like that. So Jesus says, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And quickly, in the Old Testament, the cup of wrath that God poured out on the nations, on the people, on individuals, was against sin. And when Jesus said, Lord, in the garden, let this cup pass from me. He was saying, is there any way? But no, there was not. He was going to drink the cup of wrath to its last dregs. And when he died on the cross... He was doing so in our place. And the wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. And so. When we observe this table. We remember that Jesus said. This is my blood in the new covenant. Which is poured out for many. Just a moment. The elders are going to come. We're going to have elders and deacons. We're going to have a few on either side. The team in the front is going to partake. And the worship team will be. Uh, leading us in worship. There will be ushers on the aisles. Come up the interior aisles. Go back the out, out, outer aisles. And up this middle aisle. And we will share together. And as I. Many ways of. Serving communion. It may not be the way you grew up with. 
If we want to do it fully biblically, we have to recline. And I don't think we've got tables and sofas big enough that we can all recline at table and partake. But as you come, think to the body of Christ. You're coming forward with sheep who are following the great shepherd. And as you come, pray that God will draw all of those that are on the hearts of our particular flock that's part of a much bigger flock back to the Lord and that they will bring Jesus or Jesus will bring them into the fold. I'm going to pray for this meal. Father, day after day, I am amazed as I sit down to eat at breakfast or lunch or dinner. The embarrassment of abundance of riches that we enjoy in this country. I never, ever take it for granted. And I know that there are many here who would say the exact same thing. We don't take it for granted. But Lord, when we sit down to this meal, when we come together to partake of the bread and the vine, as we remember the body that was given for us, badly beaten and the blood that was spilled for the shedding the shedding of the blood that was spilled for our forgiveness and deliverance from sin we recognize that this is a blessing far beyond anything else that we eat and enjoy from day to day and so father Exalt Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. And may we recognize that some will see and be repulsed because they hate the notion of the free gift of God, of salvation through Jesus. But some will observe and be attracted. And so give us hearts that, that, that follow you and that live the life and nourish our hearts together in this meal as we exalt Jesus. Amen. If you are not... Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.